This morning we're going to consider the Christians' God-given unity and glory. The Christians' God-given unity and glory. From John chapter 17, verse 20 through to verse 23. Up until now, in this high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've considered Jesus praying for himself. For example, look at verse 5 there in John 17. Jesus said, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He's praying for that glory that he had with the Father, even before the foundation of the world. Also, we've considered various prayer requests of Jesus that were, in the first instance, meant for the apostles, prayer requests on behalf of the apostles. However, in my application, I took the liberty of extending much of what was asked for by Jesus to include all who would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in, in, the, in due course. People in here today, we've already looked at Jesus praying for unity for his apostles and that unity that Jesus prayed for, for his apostles, he prays for people here today. And I I put that in the present tense. I'd like to emphasise the fact that this high priestly prayer, it's an ongoing prayer. Jesus forever lives to make intercession for those who belong to him. You can rightly picture the the Son of God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the great heavenly high priest seated at the right hand of his Father, interceding for his church. And we've seen the things that he's been praying for. I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil. That was something that Jesus prayed for his apostles, that they be kept from the evil. What is the evil? The evil that is in this world. Everywhere you look, it's evil. It really is. You've got your head buried in the sand up to your ankles if you cannot see the evil in this world. And the Bible speaks of the the devil like a roaring lion walking about in the world seeking whom he may devour. The devil, the prince of this world, the god of this world, no less. And I've placed great emphasis on the evil that is within each one of us. Now, as a Christian, uh, for a number of years now, even as your pastor, I'm only too aware of the iniquity in my own heart. And I, I covet those prayers of Jesus for me, praying that God would keep me from the evil that is within myself. And that daily battle that I have with the lust uh, of the flesh, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Something that we all have to deal with. And so Jesus prays for us that God will keep us from the evil. Today we shall look at verses 20 through to verse 23 and consider the Christians' God-given unity and glory. Look again at verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, referring to the apostles, but for them also which shall believe on me 
through their word, through the word of the apostles. So we can see from this point onwards, from verse 20, the prayer requests of the Lord Jesus Christ to his Father and are now specifically for the likes of you and me. I don't have to make that extension anymore. It's there very clearly that Jesus is praying for us who would believe in him through the word of the apostles. The word of the apostles is part of the scriptures. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, you need to listen carefully to this one because it's quite, uh, or, or read it for yourself, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, verse 16, the Apostle Peter said the following about the Apostle Paul and his New Testament letters. And this is what Peter said. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, not always easy reading the letters of the Apostle Paul, uh, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So in that passage, the Apostle Peter referred to the Apostle Paul and his letters, and he uh, referred to the the letters of the Apostle Paul's as the scriptures. And the scriptures are not vain and empty philosophy or the wisdom of men, rather they are God-breathed. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it is written that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Those words that we read from the apostles and indeed all the scriptures are breathed down from heaven onto these pages. God breathed. Therefore, what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ taught and which is recorded with all the other scriptures in the Bible is of heavenly origin and it is without error. As the apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 verse 11 and 12, but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. The gospel preached by Paul is not after man. It doesn't come from men. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel that Paul preached came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. When you understand that, you'll understand how it is that on three occasions, the Apostle Paul referred to the gospel of Christ as his gospel. Have you ever noticed that when you've read the Bible? Paul referring to the gospel as my gospel. And maybe you thought, well, hang on, isn't it the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's one and the same thing. Paul was able to say my gospel because what he received was by revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't say that. I can't say that. I can't say, listen to my gospel. The gospel that I preach is my gospel. But the apostles could. 
because they received it from Jesus. And because that gospel message that was taught by the apostles is of divine origin, the apostle Paul was able to say the following in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power, <coughs> the power of God unto salvation to everyone to, that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul said, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Maybe there's someone in here now who thinks the gospel of Christ is foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. This is the gospel that Paul preached. The gospel that he said is my gospel. It is the power of God. And if you understand that, then you'll understand why it was that Jesus said in verse 20 of John chapter 17, and for for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Sorry, it's the next one. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, through the, the doctrine or the words of the apostles. People believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, people being saved. Why? Because that word is the power of God unto salvation, quite literally. It's not like that novel that you read or uh, what you read in the newspaper or in that glossy magazine. It's the power of God. Those words of Jesus in verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, they highlight something. And what they highlight is how greatly used by Jesus the apostles were. Can you see that? We're saved, we're brought to faith in Jesus through the word of the apostles. That really does set them apart from the rest of us. And I'm not elevating the apostles in any way there. I'm not making them any better than us. I'm simply bringing to you the fact that they were used in a way that we are not. The ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ appointed them to was something very, very special, to say the least. And over over the past 2,000 years, a multitude of hell-deserving sinners. I say multitude because I haven't got a clue how many people. God only knows. But a multitude of hell-deserving sinners, including people here today, have come to saving faith in Jesus through the word of the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 speaks of the church being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So that extends the word to the whole Bible there, the prophets and uh, the, the apostles and the prophets, in other words, the whole Bible. 
As such, the word that was given to the church through the apostles is the foundation for the church for all time. What I don't want to do is leave you with the idea that those apostles were perfect. If anyone who reads the New Testament carefully would know that the apostles were anything but perfect. In fact, the apostle Paul described himself as the chief of sinners. And I'm sure he meant it when he said that. He really did think that he was the chief of sinners. And I, when I read that, I think, well, you were wrong, Paul, because I'm the chief of sinners. And Paul also called himself a wretched man. He wasn't beating himself up over these things, but he was being honest. And he, what he was saying is, although I'm a sinner, God is great. He even saved a wretch like me. Nevertheless, Jesus appointed those men to formulate the doctrine of the church and their divinely inspired words still reach deep into the hearts and minds with saving power. In that sense, they were really unique. And if you can understand that, if you get that into your head, how unique they were without bigging them to some uh, you know, level that really they don't attain to, they were unique in their ministry, then you'll see how absurd it is. And that's a very polite word under the circumstances, how absurd it is for people today, uh, such as the leader, I'm sorry about this, but such as the leading pastor of the Living Hope Church here on this island to set themselves up as apostles. If you don't believe it, go on the website. People setting themselves up as apostles. I say absurd because one of the fundamental requirements for having been an apostle was seeing Jesus. Anyone in here, have you seen Jesus? Anyone on this island, have they actually seen Jesus? But uh, And it doesn't end there, but that is one of the qualifications. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? I'll say that again. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? Speaking to those who have been saved, brought to faith in Jesus through his word. And he's showing them and he's making it very clear to them that he is truly an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were a lot of false apostles around then, as there are today, self-appointed apostles. But the apostle Paul was making it very clear that he was the real deal. And that was 2,000 years ago, or thereabouts. And they, you, I, I hope you can see what they were about, those apostles. Jesus appointed them to establish the early church, to formulate that doctrine, which is the foundation for the church for all time. That doctrine that still reaches people now with saving power. And, and the idea that there are apostles now is nonsense. It is truly absurd. 
and it is something that should be dismissed. Let's move on now to verse 21. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus has already prayed for unity amongst his apostles in verse 11. Jesus said, and now I am no more in the world. Well, he was in the world, but he was speaking uh, as if the work that his father sent him to do was done because it was as good as done. I am no more in the world, but these are in the world and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are. He was speaking specifically about the apostles there. However, now Jesus prays for unity amongst those who shall believe on him through hearing the word of the apostles, through coming to faith in Jesus, that there would be that unity in the church. Unity amongst people like us who are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. As was the case in verse 11, the unity that is prayed for is compared with the unity that exists in the Godhead. That's amazing, isn't it? Look at it again in verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, this is the comparison now with the Godhead, the the Trinity, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. What that unity is not is... When you consider what God is, God is three subsist, uh, three subsistences, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. That's uh, uh, an explanation given for the unity uh, that exists in the Godhead, taken from the Baptist Confession of Faith. Well, that really isn't us, is it? That's not a description of us. One substance, power and eternity. Though that is a description of the triune God, it's clearly not a description of us. Having said that, according to 2 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 4, Christians are partakers of the divine nature. You as a Christian... You are a partaker of the divine nature. You need to understand what that means, though, because if you're a Mormon, you might say, well, that means that you, you're, you, you're, you're going to be a god when you die. You're going to be a mini-god in your own right. What does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature? Because when you understand that, then you'll understand how we have a unity which is comparable to the unity that exists in the Godhead. Okay. If you belong to Jesus, then you are in him. In other words, your identity is in Christ. Maybe you've said it yourself, that I am in Christ. Maybe you've said it and you haven't really understood what you're saying. To say that you are in Christ is biblical, it's biblically correct, and what it means is that you, your identity 
is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are very helpful metaphors to show us how we are in Christ if we are Christians. For example, in John chapter 15, Jesus is described as the true vine and all Christians are living branches in the true vine, drawing on that um, continual flow of grace that comes from the main stem, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see how, if you belong to Jesus, you are in him as a branch, a living branch, not a piece of dead wood, but a living branch in Christ. Another uh, lovely illustration that we have in the Bible is that uh, the church is the body of Christ. Christians are members of that one body with Jesus as the head of that one body. So we're in Christ in the sense that we are all members in that one body with Jesus as the head. And yet another helpful description uh, is the spiritual house that Peter speaks of in his first epistle. A spiritual house where Christians are all living stones all fitted into the place that has been made for them. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone, holding everything together. Again, can you see how you are in Christ, if you belong to him? And in that sense, you you can correctly say that you are a partaker of the divine nature. Not forgetting that you are indwelt with God, the Holy Spirit indwelt with God the Holy Spirit. For example, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, Because ye are sons or daughters, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God the Holy Spirit in your heart, crying, Abba, Father. It means, to, if you're a partaker of the divine nature, it means that if you are a Christian, you are filled with the fullness of God through knowing the love of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19. Can you see how very different you are to everyone else if you are a Christian? This is the reality of it. So there really ought to be that unity Otherwise, it becomes nothing but nice words in the Bible. It needs to be the reality in our lives as a church and as individuals. One in Christ, partakers of the divine nature, indwelt by God, and so on. Being one as God is one is also about having a mutual love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's face it, it doesn't make sense if you're all members in one body and you you can't stand each other. Not very good, is it? It is a love that transcends denominational boundaries and reaches born-again paupers in the slums of Bombay, as well as your own little circle of friends here on this island. I remember many times, when I first became a Christian, my heart went out to someone I didn't even know who'd been poisoned by her own family in Spain, a young woman who became a Christian. 
she converted from Roman Catholicism and they point, they poisoned her. And I heard that story and I just, even as a new Christian, I thought, how sad, but how wonderful as well that she's just been, she's just been fast-tracked into the presence of her Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The unity spoken of in verse 21 is not one that can be brought about by us. I trust you realise that. It's not, it's not possible for you or me to bring about that unity. It doesn't come by signing a declaration of faith. It doesn't come, or it's not cobbled together through compromise on the word of God. That's happening all over the place, isn't it? Uh, you're seeing churches um, descend into apostasy, denominations descending into apostasy as they compromise on what? On the word of the apostles? Things are, um, are unacceptable to the world that we live in, so what does the church do? It capitulates and it gives in to pressures from the world, whether it's regards, I don't want to go through it all now, but various um, controversies that are going on, topical things such as same-sex marriage uh, and, and LGBT and all the rest of it. We're falling into line. The church is falling into line with these things and it shouldn't do that. It should not be unity at all costs. It is a oneness that is entirely brought about by God. Not by us, but by God. And that is why Jesus prayed to his Father and not to us for Christian unity. Let's have a look at verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. We see in verse 22 that Jesus has given his glory. To the apostles, and I'm going to extend this again, in the first place he gave his glory to the apostles. Look at it again, verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. Do you understand that? It certainly cannot be the glory that's spoken of in verse 5. Let's go back to that again. Jesus praying for himself and he said and now O Father glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was that glory speaks of the divine perfections the attributes of God that are not transferable to us or to any of God's creatures we cannot imagine that we would have that glory which is the divine perfections of God. So what is the glory that is given to Christians, the apostles, and to us, and is key to maintaining unity? What is it? Well, quite simply, it's about seeing Jesus, who is the express image of the invisible God. You need to be someone who has seen Jesus. Again, Going back to the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1, he spoke of God revealing his son, not to him, but in him. That was brought to my attention years ago by my old pastor, and I loved hearing that then, and I love reading it now. I've read it so many times. 
And um, that Jesus, if you're a Christian, God has revealed his son in you. Not just to you, but in you. So you are in Christ and he is in you. In John chapter 1 verse 14, the apostle John said of Jesus, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You need to be someone who to, who has seen Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, the one who is full of grace and truth. I don't mean literally again, I'm not talking about um, the qualification for being an apostle, is someone who's seen Jesus, but you see something of that glory. And I'll continue with this now. All true Christians have, in, in a sense, beheld something of that glory of Jesus. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, it is written, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that's a clear reference to the first day of creation, when God said, let there be light. And there was light. So, again, what Paul said here. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness have shined in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In verse 21 and 22 we can see that Jesus prayed for unity amongst his people so that the world may believe that God has sent him. Therefore, Christian unity is vital. It's a vital witness in a world of lost sinners. And that is something for you to do as people who have had the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shined in your heart. And Jesus has been revealed to you and in you. And by faith, Jesus is enthroned in your heart. And you see him in the pages of the word of God. When you read the word of the apostles, you see something of Jesus. When you read about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and the apostles were sleeping, they slept through it. When Jesus sweat great drops of blood. When you read that, do you see something of the agony of Jesus when he sweat blood at the prospect of drinking from that cup of suffering and bearing in his body your sin, did he? Do you see that? Do you see something of Jesus bearing away your sin in his body? What the world does not need to see is compromise. I've said this, compromise left, right and centre with professing Christians burying fundamental Christian truth, Bible truth. When you do that, when you bury the Bible, what you're doing in effect is burying Jesus rather than proclaiming him. The world does not need to see political manoeuvring in the church with unity being built upon the lowest common denominators. The world does not even need to like you 
It really doesn't. You, you, you've got it wrong if you think, well, the world needs to think I'm Mr. Wonderful or Miss Wonderful. That is what I need to do. I need to be out there and everyone needs to love me. And then um, because they all love me, they'll become Christians. It's not like that. The world does not need to love you. In fact, if you are faithful to the truth, the world will hate you. Jesus said that, didn't he? And you are to rejoice and to rejoice exceedingly when you are insulted and persecuted for Christ's sake. You're to rejoice and be exceeding glad that you suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Not for your own stupidity, but for the name of Jesus. When a church compromises people who are united in their love for the Lord Jesus Christ, a love that is evident for one another, when it's not compromising rather, when there is evident that love that is There's a love that's evident to the outside world, a a love that is biblically based. Uh, It's a love that this world knows nothing about, but it can nevertheless see it. You can see things and not understand it, can't you? And when the world sees that love and that unity in the church, then that is a mighty tool and a mighty witness for Jesus. Pray that we would be such a church and that Jesus would be made known in each one of us, individually and as a church. Amen.